Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. Good morning, Hill City Church. Thank you. If you're a first-time guest with us this morning, we're so glad you're gathering with us. I have to admit, coming to our gatherings is one of the highlights of my week and my prayer for all of us this morning. And this includes the third through fifth graders who are sitting in with us. I love that. I have a few of my own here this morning. My prayer is that God connects Psalm 32 to your heart. And he can do it. It's supernatural. He can do it if we've come postured to learn and to hear a word from God and respond. By the way, my name is Danny McNamara. I'm one of the newest members of the team here at Hill City, and it's a privilege to be preaching Psalm 32 this morning. This is uh, such a privilege. I'm humbled to be before you, and I'm excited to see what God's going to do. So my recommendation would, would be for you to have this psalm right in front of you so that you can follow along. My dream was it, for it to be all of it on the back screen. It's only 11 verses, but it wasn't going to fit. The font would be way too small. I love when you can see the entire psalm in one setting. We're going to walk through it. We're going to attack it stanza by stanza. It's short. It's only 11 verses. We're going to break it down into five steps. It's a highly structured psalm. So we're going to follow along. So please, uh, it, it will be up on the screen for you as we go through these steps, but it will be important for you to have the text in front of you in some form or fashion. Let me pray and ask for the Lord's help before we begin. And, and, I, and I enter into this prayer. Let me preface it this way. I know that this, this sermon is not happening within a vacuum. There's, Satan does not want truth to be out there. I'm very aware of that this morning. And so we must pray and ask God for his help and dependence. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you specifically for the Psalms. We give you praise for the authority of your word, the impact it has both on us and for us. We need you this morning, Father, to help us rightly interpret and apply your word. And we fully expect and anticipate that you will speak once again through your word, just like you did when you spoke these words to David. Speak to us once again, Lord. That is our prayer. We thank you for your spirit inside of us that helps us in this very endeavor. And we thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. So we're in the middle of our Summer in the Psalm series. And I'll never forget the first time it hit me how much literary real estate God dedicated to poetry, particularly in the Psalms. So what might this dedication of this much literary real estate communicate about our God? What, what might it tell us about our God? I would submit to you that the Psalms show us how to talk to God. This is not something you get with the Apostle Paul per se. The Psalms show us how we can communicate real frustration, how to communicate real pain, how to be honest with God, how to hold him to his promises, how to say we're sorry for letting him down. The Psalms touch our emotions. And there were and there still are 
versions of Christianity, strands of Christianity that did not allow you to feel. Or if you felt a certain way, you're to keep quiet about it and repent of it. And we know that these versions of Christianity can be a recipe for disaster because then we won't know how to handle interpersonal relationships and marriages. The Psalms can help us with emotional and spiritual maturity, particularly when we feel ashamed. So if you're a note taker this morning, I want to submit to you our message big idea right here from Psalm 32. We're going to see that the path of true happiness is pointed out in this psalm. And it's available to those who confess their sin to God. Let me say it again. The path of true happiness, and we're going to talk about that word true happiness. We, it's like hashtag blessed. There's a lot of fuzziness with that word blessed. We want to unpack. This, this, this word is not talking about a giddy happiness. The path of true happiness is pointed out in this psalm. And it's available to those who confess their sin to God. And we're going to see that God stands ready to forgive. Also, if you're a note taker, we're going to attack this in five steps. Let me just point those out really quick here. uh, And I know I'm talking fast, but hopefully you can get these. Number one, the reality of a right relationship with God in verses one and two. We're going to talk about the reality of a right relationship with God. Next, we're going to see the experience of a relationship with God that is hindered and then restored through confession. We're going to see that in verses 3 through 5. Next, we're going to see how David becomes an evangelist for confession. In other words, he's going to say, he's going to invite us all into this. We'll say things like, for this reason, every one of your faithful followers should pray to God. Next, number four, we're going to see the promise of wisdom that goes beyond the confession and subsequent forgiveness. We're going to talk about spiritual formation from verses 8 through 10. And next, we're going to finish, finally, we're going to finish with our response to Psalm 32. So let's look at what the psalmist David does first. He starts out by stating a declaration or a principle. And this principle is relevant to the topic of a personal relationship with God. Let's look at these first two verses. How blessed, by the way, I'm reading out of the uh, net translation. This is the New English translation. How blessed is the one whose rebellious acts are forgiven, whose sin is pardoned. How blessed is the one whose wrongdoing the Lord does not punish, or we could say that another way, to whom the Lord does not impute wrongdoing, in whose spirit there is no deceit. So in these first two verses, this is wisdom right here, and it's true, even if our emotions don't match up to this this morning. In other words, we have to remember here that God's word becomes the means by which we gain understanding, and then we allow our emotions to catch up to that understanding. That's important because I don't know how emotion, you know, I I do know this. For some in the room, it was hard for you to even come into the theater this morning. And I'm sensitive to that and I think God is too. But we're going to see that this principle is true about this, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute wrongdoing. For instance, think about it. Because sin is so defeating, and it is. 
the joy of forgiveness is so great. The relief, and I mean the relief. I mean, this is my first sermon here at Hill City. I'll be relieved when I get done. Take that the right way, but, you know, I'm nervous. But it's not, the relief that we feel because our sins are forgiven. So the prerequisite of spiritual health is a self-conscious awareness of one's sinful life. Uh, um, this would have been the time where I'm getting syllabi ready for my students. You know, and sometimes there's prerequisites. So if we had a course called, let's just, uh, I don't know, let's call it Spiritual Health 101. Spiritual Health 101, and you were going to be a student in this course. I would want to say that, oh, and you say, well, what courses do I need to take to get into this course called Spiritual Health 101? I would submit to you that the prerequisite for that particular class would be a conscious awareness of one's sin. In other words, the good news only makes sense to those who are aware of the bad news. And that's true. Look at the four words in these two verses that belong to this semantic domain of sin. Look at these four words. Four different Hebrew words that are translated for us. Rebellious acts. Number two, sin. Whose sin is pardoned. Number three, wrongdoing. These three words will be repeated down in verse 5. This is, I almost brought a poem that I wrote as, a, as an elementary school student. <laughs> this is poetry. And so these three words are brought down into verse 5. These three words that, that are about sin. We're going to see it. It's beautiful. Also, you see the word deceit there at the end of verse 2 in whose spirit there is no deceit. David presupposes, we can say this, David presupposes in verses one and two that we are sinners. He do, he's, in other words, he, he doesn't say if one has rebellious acts or if one has wrongdoing or sin. No, it's presupposed. Notice also who's doing all the action. I like to talk about verbs. <laughs> verbs, it's where all the action's at, right? There's eight parts of speech. You learn that. Verbs are one of them. My kids, if I invited them up, we could sing a nice song. Eight parts of speech. Eight parts of speech. Listen, when, when my students complain about if I say the meta language of adverbs and adjectives, verbs and nouns and pronouns and interjections, and then you get mad at me, I say, it wasn't my idea to embed timeless truth with words. That was God's idea. Take it up with him. Let's go. Look at the verbs in verses 1 and 2. I'm serious about that because you know we hear those excuses all the time. It was God's idea. Look at these verbs. It's God. God's the divine agent behind these strong, vivid graphic verbs that have everything to do with our salvation. We're talking about forgiven, pardoned, does not punish or impute wrongdoing. These are strong verbs. Our God stands ready to forgive. Only God has the authority to forgive the sins of humanity. 
If we go back to the beginning of the biblical storyline, we could say that we were made to fellowship with God. We were made to be in relationship with God. We know this fellowship was broken because of sin. And sin is what is presupposed here by David. Now, I also believe that these first two verses are relevant to the important question about a personal relationship with God, a right relationship with God. And I would suggest for Hill City that Psalm 32 is central to the gospel. Here's why. Paul quotes Psalm 32, 1 and 2, in Romans 4, 7 and 8, right in the middle of a very technical argument about justification. One of my new favorite studies when I do Bible study now is the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. And so when Dr. Royce Moore presented me the five psalms that we were going to use here this summer, and I had my pick of psalms, I was like, can I have Psalm 32? And you want to know why? Because David picks it up in Romans 4, and I want a chance to talk about that. I want to take, I'm not going to waste my shot to talk about that. This is quoted, this psalm is quoted in Romans 4. Thus we actually have this inspired commentary. Let's look at this. Right before Paul quotes Psalm 32, 1 and 2, in Romans 4, 7 and 8, in Romans 4, 5, it says that God justifies. This is a legal, forensic verb justifies the ungodly. This is something, if you look at the Old Testament and you're familiar with the story of Israel, a judge of Israel would never justify the ungodly. A judge in the Old Testament would vindicate the righteous and condemn the wicked. But in the New Covenant, what we see is that God justifies the ungodly. That's you and I. And this action of justification happens by faith apart from our works. That's big. It's all God, just like it is here in Psalm 32, 1 and 2. This verb justify or the noun justification are important theological words for us at Hill City because they have everything to do with our legal standing before God this morning. And is there any more important question in life than this? What is the status of your standing before God right now? I'm asking about right now, not in the future, right now. I believe one of the most important truths contributed by Romans, and and maybe we'll preach through Romans one time, but one of the most important truths contributed by Romans is that we're justified now. The the, the verdict has been dropped. In fact, the the verdict's been dropped ahead of time. We got our inheritance early, and God did this. He knew that we were going to screw it up. But he gave it to us ahead of time. This is a forensic act on God's part. And he did it by sending Jesus to stand in our place for our sins. These sins that we read about in Psalm 32. God did not justify us based on our works. He justified us based on the work of Christ. We know this as good news. So when I stand before the judge, that impartial judge... Jesus is there interceding for me, and I get a pass. He stood in my place and gave me his righteousness as a free gift. How blessed is the one whose rebellious acts are forgiven. 
Let's say a word about this word blessed. I've said it can be a fuzzy word for Christians. Let me, I, I suppose I could frame the question this way. Where does your theology of sin and salvation take you emotionally? What the world calls lucky or fortunate, we call blessed. We're referring to God's divine favor. We are the privileged recipient of God's divine favor. There is real joy and delight for those who are right with God. We're talking about the emotion that God-given security produces. In the New Testament, we know that God-given security turns into the fruit that the Spirit of God produces in the heart of a believer. We're talking about love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, etc., The fruit produced by the Spirit is the new covenant evidence that an individual has taken this path in life. So I want my emotions to match this truth. How blessed is the one whose rebellious acts are forgiven. It is true. We we don't often feel good enough for God. Evil can trick us into thinking that that's not a true reality. And we know that the kingdom of darkness is opportunistic. Evil has a voice and it speaks to us frequently. And sin is not this abstract category that you read about in a systematic theology book, as if it's out there. Sin is part of each of our individual stories. But sin does not own us this morning as believers. Sin has no legal claim on our life. In other words, you owe Mr. Sin nothing. Oh, how we as parents want our children to get this. And oh, how we want this to get this. We want to get this ourselves as parents. True happiness is available to those who are forgiven. We we must move on. Let's look at the next three, uh, verse three, four, and five. Look Look at what David does now. Here's the question. What happens when we keep silent about our sin? Here we see David recounting a personal crisis experience. We can all relate with David here. This is on the topic of a hindered relationship with God. If being justified now has everything to do with having a right relationship with God, then what happens when we have this out-of-step relationship with God? Look at this. When I refused to confess my sin, my whole body wasted away. While I groaned in pain all day long. For day and night you tormented me. Or in other words, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. You tried to destroy me in the intense heat of summer. (laughs) My, My brain just went to some hot days when I used to be a roofer. Hot days on the roof. This intense heat of summer. Then I confessed my sin. I no longer covered up my wrongdoing. I said, I will confess my rebellious acts to the Lord, and then you forgave my sins. One of the gospel rhythms here at Hill City is that we confess our sins to God, and we build this into our worship gathering by starting with God and his great glory. And we move to a time of confession where we acknowledge that we're currently falling short of his glory. In other words, I would submit that Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned, and here's what we miss. That's in the past. That's a past tense verb. For all have sinned. Here's what we miss. And are currently falling short of the glory of God. Even though you've been justified, you'll, you'll be justified at the, later down in Romans 3. You've been justified now while you are currently falling short of God's perfective glory. 
You know where that puts us? In a very humble position. We need God. I'm so happy is not the right word, but I love the fact that we build in confession to our time of worship here at Hill City. We must consistently acknowledge our dependence on God. Lately, I, I would say probably since the fall of, I, I do three by five cards similar to like this, this size every day. It's like my little to-do list. So I do three by five cards. I, I go through these things like, like I go through yellow highlighters and I go through a lot of highlighters. But here's the deal. At the top of the three by five card on the list, at the top, it starts with prayer and dependence on God. Every day, I feel that. I need that. Without him, I'm truly lost in every sense of the word. And we must consistently acknowledge our dependence on God. This is about, a, this has to do with our relationship with God. So from Psalms 32, 3 through 5, we learn that when we choose not to confess our sin to God, this has a tremendous effect on us. This past semester, I had the privilege of, of learning about and teaching on anthropology. That's a $50 word for the study of mankind. One of the important truths I learned was that we are embodied creatures. We are embodied creatures meaning that our, my eternal soul has been housed in what the Apostle Paul calls a tent. <laughs> so this tent is made up of skin and bones and muscle and tissue. And that's what we see here in Psalm 32.3. For David, when he kept silent about his sin, his whole body wasted away. This tells us that the spiritual affects the physical. And according to David in verses 3 and 4, this spiritual depression was a 24-7 reality. I could say 24-7, 365 reality. Wow. Think about that. My, my whole body wasted away. While I groaned in pain all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. When I read this about our God, because God is, when it says, you tried to destroy me in the intense heat of summer, that you is God. I read that as his love. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in the New Covenant will tell us that God disciplines those he loves. I see God's loving his people here so much that he's coming for them. That's how bad he wants a relationship. Look at the confession in verse 5. Then I confessed my sin. I no longer covered up my wrongdoing. I said, I will confess my rebellious acts to the Lord, and then you forgave my sins. Now, we need to, we need to be as clear as possible about confession. What is confession? I would suggest that confession is when you face up to reality with God. In other words, agreeing with God about who he is which then leads to agreeing with God about who we are. You know, as parents, my wife and I, we are often confessing to our children and seeking to repair the relationship when we've done wrong. And this is a great model. You know, I, re recently this week, we had a speaker in here at Hill City 
uh, for our staff that taught us how to make an apology or taught us how to confess. And one of the things he said is, you don't say, I'm sorry if. You say, I'm sorry for. I used to be an RD in a college dorm. <laughs> My wife and I lived right in the middle. There were like 90 ladies that lived on, on the one side and 90 men on the other. And we lived right in the middle. And, of course, we had to make sure that everything happened, <laughs> that people stayed alive, <laughs> you know? All the, th- the things that need to happen to make college successful. And, of course, there were confrontations that had to happen sometimes. There were certain stipulations of the living spaces and things like that. And there were times when my office is right in the middle. The students would come in and they would confess, but they would be like, this happened yeah, this happened, but, you know, if you knew. And I started, we started a joke. I started, what, don't tell me this is going to be the Yabbit crew. Yabbit, Yabbit, Yabbit. Yeah, this happened. I'm sorry, but. And I just started saying, yeah, but. And it just, we, Yabbit, 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 Yabbit. I'm like, how about a real confession? I am sorry for. Sometimes our apologies fall short. Sometimes our confession to God, agreeing with God about what's true about who he is, and being precise. We as Christians often take spiritual inventory of our heart. We ask God to reveal those areas where we need to confess. Here we're talking about heart issues, heart attitudes. These issues are happening inside of us. The problem's not out there, it's in here. A confession then is an ongoing practice about these types of heart issues. Confession is not a one-time event that takes place at conversion. Yes, there is repentance and confession when we turn to Christ for salvation, but godliness should not be equated with confessing less or repenting less. Here at Hill City, we say we're gospel-centered. This is one of our six core values because we see the gospel as more than just the front door of our relationship with God. We see confession as the whole house, so to speak. Well, what do I mean? Yes, we are saved, and we are also being saved right now, and we will be saved in the future. And confession is part of our continual posture before God as we relate to him throughout our days. So, Christian, what sin are you keeping silent this morning? In that moment, as a believer, the Spirit of God can convict us. What are some reasons why we keep silent about our sin? There may be a variety of reasons here. There may be the issue of condemnation or shame. In other words, you may feel like you're going to be condemned, so you choose to hide your sin because you're ashamed of yourself. It's going to cost you too much to get right. In your life, there's, there's areas that still need healing, perhaps. These may be wounds from your childhood, perhaps. All over this theater this morning, there are stories of pain, harm, shame, trauma. At Hill City, we desire to be a church where we're constantly saying, if the gospel is true, you have nothing to hide. We recognize that there's a difference between shame and guilt, and we desire to pro- provide proper nuance to these situations. Also, perhaps you're keeping silent about your sin because you've not tuned your ear to the kind voice of God. In other words, you're somewhat confused with all the voices in your head. And we know there's tons of competing voices out there. 
We must be careful and precise to tune our ears to the kind voice of God so that we can experience this sweet fellowship that's described in verses 1 and 2. I'm going to jump ahead here for the sake of time. We must keep moving. I, I, I would love to, to pull off the side of the road here and park for a little bit and talk about the conscience. The conscience. Like, what do you do when your conscience condemns you? How reliable is my conscience? How do I calibrate my conscience? These are things that we need to talk about. But for the sake of time, we've got to move on. We must keep moving. So look at the, what the psalmist does now in Psalm 32, 6 and 7. Before I move on, I, I would make a big deal about that kind voice of God. What does the voice of God sound like in your head? What is the tone and tenor of the voice of God? I think that's a great question. For this, look, look at verses 6 and 7. For this reason, every one of your faithful followers should pray to you. See, David now is going to turn into an evangelist and say all of us should get in on this. Every one of your faithful followers should pray to you while there is this window of opportunity. David's encourage, encouraging us all to pray while there is time. The forgiven soul turns into an evangelist. Hey, you should do it. Hey, you should pray to God right now. Tell other people about our experiences of being forgiven. Wow. Notice the sense of urgency in verse 6. While there's a window of opportunity, God stands ready to forgive right now while he can be found. When I asked you earlier, what are you keeping silent about? And the Spirit of God may have convicted you in that moment about your sin. The time is now. Not next week, not next month. Now. Don't, don't play games with God about the timing of your confession. Notice also the rich imagery here in the form of metaphor. Certainly, when the surging water rises, it will not reach them. The surging, the surging water will not reach them. You are my hiding place. I loved it this week. On the, started a new job, and my wife says, what's our verses, babe, on the way out the door? I was at the car. She was at the screen door, said, what's our verses again? And she wanted me to say, you are my hiding place. You protect me from distress. You surround me or overwhelm me or encircle me with shouts of joy from those celebrating deliverance. This is our God. God stands ready to forgive. Note, um, this, we see divine protection, help, and care. I'll never, just let me say a quick word about this. This, uh, this, this imagery of shouts of joy from those celebrating deliverance. So God encircles us or surrounds us or overwhelms us with these shouts of joy from those celebrating deliverance. I remember as a nine-year-old boy, I think I was born in 1976, I think around 1985, in Meadville, Pennsylvania, our local high school basketball team was incredible. And as a nine-year-old boy, I remember after milking the cows, never wanting to miss a home game, never wanting to miss a home game because every home game started a specific way, and that is with an alley-oop dunk from Michael Pirro to Michael Burnett. And I can still remember it like it was yesterday, and I'm down there on the front row with my dad, and you could almost predict it, and the other team knew it was going to happen, and they couldn't stop it. 
and you should, the, the gym, I don't know, 2,500, 3,000 people in there, it was like, woo, woo, woo. I mean, it would just explode. It was like I was levitating as a nine-year-old boy. Shouts of joy from those celebrating deliverance. This is what the forgiveness of God feels like. <laughs> wow. And of course, in David's day, you know, the, the, the imagery lives within the ancient Near East with military conquest and victory, jubilation of victory. Next, we see in Psalm 32, 8 and 10, 8 through 10, the promise of wisdom beyond confession and forgiveness. Look at what David says. I will instruct you and teach you about how you should live or the path you should walk. I will advise you as I look you in the eye. Do not be like the unintelligent horse or mule, which will not obey you unless they are controlled by a bridle or bit. An evil person suffers much pain, but the faithfulness of the Lord overwhelms. That's the same, ver that's the same verb up there with overwhelms, uh, with this shouts of joy from those celebrating deliverance, overwhelms the one who trusts in him. So here we should say a word about instruction or teaching that help us know how to live and really live. How does one gain this wisdom? This is wisdom beyond confession and forgiveness. And I think the new covenant believer, we would all admit that there's 66 books. There's 66 books and one book we highly recommend. We should be hungry to gain understanding about God. We want to know God through his word. One of my dreams is to write a biography of God at the end of my life. This is happening little by little, book by book. This is not a willy-nilly approach to Scripture. It's very intentional because the stakes are high. We should, not avoid, we should not shy away from studying theology. We cannot apologize about the way God embedded timeless truth in historical context. And I know it's hard work to think critically and study hard. For Father's Day, my wife bought me swim lessons from our daughter's swim teacher because I went to their swim team and I was like, oh my word. I'm so jealous. I want to swim like that. And I, I, I'm, I never grew up learning how to swim, and I was just kind of scared about it, honestly. Kind of feel a little embarrassed about it. So my wife thought she would get me swim lessons for Father's Day. So when they gave me my Father's Day present, I'm like, you get two swim lessons from your daughter's swim coach. And by the way, he's 15. <laughs> I'm telling you. That first day for an hour, he had me kicking my legs so hard I thought I was going to die. And then he wanted me to add in the, the freestyle stroke. And then he wanted me to breathe every three strokes. And I'm like, Jackson, there's no way. He's like, yeah, we're going to put this all together. He's like, don't worry, tomorrow you'll be great. And I'm like, oh, my word, it was so hard. But, you know, I'm glad that I did that. And I'm not a world-class swimmer by any means. I'm not, don't invite me to your swimming pool to critique me. But the point is this. It was hard. And here's, the, here's where this works. This notion of gaining instruction and wisdom and learning and writing biographies of God and avoiding a willy-nilly approach to Scripture and learning how to think critically and form convictions for yourself so that you can articulate them with clarity to those you come in contact with, this takes work. Let's not be, I don't know, weenies, I guess. That's the word that came to my head. Come focused and ready to be challenged. 
It was God's idea to use words, as I said. We ought to be a student of these words. We ought to ask questions and chase down answers. I think at Hill City, there's ways to get involved in this kind of discipleship here. Look at this. I will advise you as I look you in the eye. So when we went to Big Cedar last week, my daughter Adelaide's on one lily pad and I'm on the other. We're about, I don't know, 50 meters apart. Good ways for me to practice my 50 meter freestyle. And she wants to practice hers from lily pad to lily pad. And she said, Dad, can you keep your eye on me? I said, Adelaide, I will, I will keep my eye on you. And I looked away one thing to answer a question. She says, Dad, you, you, you're not looking. I will advise you as I look you in the eye. This is a promise from God. She she said, Dad, don't take your eye off of me. Why? Why? She wanted me to make sure that she would be okay from lily pad to lily pad. Our God said this, as I look you in the eye. Look at the prohibition in verse 9. I mean, we we don't need to spend much time on this. Don't be like a horse or a mule. (laughs) I remember at the farm when we used to raise steers for 4-H, and they didn't want to lead. So we would just say, okay, we're going to put some horsepower in front of you. So we'd fire up the John Deere tractor with a hay wagon and attach their halter to the hay wagon, and we would literally pull them down the road while they dug their heels in. Don't be like that. An evil person suffers much pain, but the faithfulness of the Lord overwhelms the one who trusts in him. And I like that translation, overwhelms. It surrounds and circles. Finally, our fifth point here. Let's look at how the psalmist concludes this psalm. What is our response to this Psalm 32? What ought our response at Hillside? You know, none of this sermon is complete until we respond to it. Rejoice in the Lord and be happy, you who are godly. Shout for joy, all you who are morally upright. So rejoice in the Lord. Just like at that ball game as a nine-year-old and those people are just clapping and yelling. This is the emotion that this psalm concludes with. What might a contextual response to this psalm look like for us here at Hill City? I would submit to you a few responses. Number one, confess your sins today and experience the assurance of forgiveness. God gives to us the possibility of an incredible emotion here. This is true happiness, joy, and delight is available to those who are forgiven and God stands ready to forgive. Number two, continue to build out your biography of God. You could simply attack this psalm this week and ask, what do I learn about God from this psalm? Who is God in this psalm? God forgives. He stands ready to forgive. We can have the assurance of forgiveness. It's not based on our works. This is divine grace. Number three, we can know that there is no sin that cannot be forgiven by God. Blaming your sin on someone else may work in a world where self-justification rules the day. I wouldn't try it in front of God. Number four, 
know this, that we are of no good to anybody as believers until we realize how good God is to us. Let me say that again. We are of no good, horizontally speaking here, when we relate with our fellow brothers and sisters at Hill City. We are of no good to anybody until we realize vertically how good God is to us. In other words, the gospel works on our want to, not necessarily on our have to. How would you live today if you knew all your sins were forgiven, all your days were guided by a God of love, and your future was secure? Number five, we often hear, sometimes we parent like, get your act together. You ought to get your act together. And I would submit to you as a new covenant believer here this morning from this psalm that the Holy Spirit will get your act together if you're a true believer. So, so if the Spirit of God is convicting you right now, why must you keep silent? I would say confess. Lay your head down on the gospel tonight.